If you notice in your bulletin this morning, you will notice this sermon title is Suffering with Job, Part 3. This is the third message today in the book of Job, and it's been almost two months since her last message, so I want to do a little review with you this morning, but as I've said before, review does not code word for nap. <laughs> the book of Job is a book about suffering. It's more, to be sure, but it's not less. And so in the first message, we looked at what these first two chapters tell us about First of all, the believer and suffering. And we, we sort of took away from the first two chapters four lessons about the believer and suffering. In the second message, we looked at what these first two chapters say about sovereignty and suffering, or really about God and suffering. And the basic message that we came away from Uh, being communicated in these first two chapters is that God is sovereign over all of the suffering in your life. That is really, in a nutshell, what these chapters communicate. Now, before we get to today's message, part three, I want to remind you that the book of Job is like a novel. I mean, it reads like a story. And when you read a novel, you can't just read the first few chapters and sort of close it and and, and be done, right? In order for it to make sense, you've got to read all the way to the end. And it's once you get to the end that sort of all the pieces come together and it all starts to make sense. So it is with the book of Job. And in a similar way, so it is with this sermon series, In the book of Job, in a way, all of the sermons that we preach from this book, they really really stand together. They really are uh, tied together and they really sort of build upon one another. So we can't really listen to one in isolation from another. Now, I, I would love to preach... Um, all of the sermons in, in sort of one sermon, but we would be here till supper time. <laughs> and we wouldn't be very happy at me, and you would be suffering. Um, <laughs> so we're not going to do that. My point is, just like the book of Job, these sermons need to be heard together. So each sermon is like a chapter in this novel of the book of Job. So it stands on its own, as it were, but you've got to hear them together, as it were, as well. All of that said, the sermon today, we're going to look at Satan in suffering. Remember, we looked at the believer in suffering, sovereignty in suffering, and now Satan in suffering. Now, today, I'm not going to give you a full-orbed sort of theology or doctrine of Satan. That's not the purpose of this message. That's not, in fact, the purpose of the book of Job. That actually is for our systematic theology class. Shameless plug that we have on Sunday mornings that you can come to and find out more about. Um, A full orb treatment of what the Bible says about Satan. Uh, Today, I'm just going to limit to what the Bible says 
about Satan to what the Bible says about Satan here in the book of Job. And I want to address two questions from this book, from these first two chapters. Here are the two questions. Number one, what is Satan's, uh, what is his strategy? What is his, what is his nature the nature of his accusations that we read about here in this book. His accusations against Job. And then secondly, we're going to look at what lessons can we look at, um, can we learn from Satan's accusations. Uh, So first of all, what was Satan's desire for Job here? What, What was his intent? What was the nature of his attack on Job? Well, if you're not there, would you open with me to the book of Job? I think most of you are there. And I want to remind you about what what Satan's desire is, as we read here again, remind ourselves again of of this narrative. So let's look in chapter 1, and start reading in verse 6. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But reach Out with your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will certainly curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not reach out and put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, I think we need to consider very seriously Satan's intent here, the nature of what he is trying to do, and it's this. Essentially, Satan is saying that Job fears God, that Job serves God, that Job worships God because God has blessed him with health, with wealth, And with a beautiful family. We read about that in the first five verses. 
all the these things that, that Job had, all of these blessings that Job had. In other words, Satan here is accusing Job of treating God like a cosmic vending machine. And, and in essence, he's saying if you take away all that Job has, his true heart is going to be revealed. Though Satan is, he is malicious in motives. Satan's scheme does have merit and impeccable logic. If you really think about it. It is only when you and I lose something that you love and trust when your true motivations and desires are exposed. As one says, listen to this, quote, what you really love and trust aren't truly seen until you are tested by loss. Now, of course, we, we know the story here. We know what happens. We know Job's response. Job proved to be faithful. Job proved to be what he said he was, what God said Job was, that he was a worshiper of God and not self. But Satan is not done he, he is never done. His plans continue until he get what he wants. So Satan, he doubled downs, his, he doubled downs on his effort. And we read about this in chapter 2. So follow along with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds firm his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, and and I can almost hear him saying it like this, Skin for skin. (laughs) You can kind of hear that in, in these words. All that a man has, he will give for his life. However, reach out your hand now, God, and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with severe boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And Job took a piece of pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting in the ashes. 
Now, we see a lot of similar language here in this second chapter as we read about in the first chapter. A lot of it is very similar, but there's something different here in this second part. And it's this, it's this enticement of skin for skin. What does this mean? What is Satan saying? Well, there are several ways people have understood skin for skin here, but in essence, they all boil down to this. Satan desires, he desires to make a personal and bodily attack on Job. Satan, in essence, responds by saying, according to one commentator, quote, that God has not really touched Job where it hurts. Satan, in other words, says, you see, Job is utterly selfish. I know it, God. You've taken away everything around him. You've taken his family away, his finances away, but you haven't taken away what he really cares about, his own life, himself. Take that away, and then you will see how he responds. Now, Satan has to respond by, by attacking him on his life, by sending these sore boils on him, because Satan knows if he requested that God kill Job, that then it would be over. That that would be taking it too far. Job wouldn't be able to respond. Satan wanted to harm Job. He wanted to harm Job to prove that Job was not what God said he was. So here is the nature of Satan's attack. Here is an answer to this first question that we've been trying to answer here from these first few chapters. Satan's plan was to accuse Job. His plan was to accuse Job right at the heart motive level. Namely, that Job's religion was fake, that it was cheap, that it was spoiled, and that it was shallow. In short, his accusation was that Job served God for Job. He did not serve God for God. That's Satan's attack. Now I want to ask, how can we apply this to our lives today? What does this text that was written so many years ago, how does this speak to us today? Well, for starters, we know that Satan, as we have seen here, is an accuser. The Bible calls him in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the accuser of the brethren. In fact, the word Satan, that word itself means accuser, opposer, adversary. That's what the word means. So what is Satan up to today? What wisdom lessons? Again, the book of Job is a book about wisdom. So what wisdom lessons can we take away from the book about Satan and suffering? I want to give us four this morning. Number one, Satan's accusations should lead us to examine our hearts. 
Satan's accusation should lead you to examine your hearts. You see, God might ultimately allow Satan to harm you because he wants to test you to show you what is in your heart. As Paul Tripp has said, quote, suffering does not so much change your heart as expose what has been in your heart all along. Tripp gives a great example of this that I hope that I think makes this concrete. So I want to I want to walk through this example that he gives to bring some flesh to what I just said. There's a woman named Sarah that Paul Tripp was counseling, and Sarah was facing a very, very hard time. What had happened to Sarah is that she had been plotted against by her husband, and her husband abandoned her. He walked out, just up and left. And she eventually lost custody of her children. And she was left financially destitute. Now, what had been done to Sarah was horribly wrong. But her emotional and spiritual response demonstrated that that all of the wrongs that were done to her, though they were bad, what was so devastating is the beliefs, the critical beliefs that she carried into those wrongs. You see, Sarah was a believer. She was a churchgoer. But at the street level, at the ground level, at the everyday run-of-the-mill level of life, God was neither the source of Sarah's security nor was he her hope. Why was that the case? Sarah had married into wealth and luxury. She had a beautiful house. She had a great circle of friends. And so for Sarah, it was the good life. It was not the gospel that got her up every morning. It was all of the things around her and all of the things that she experienced that made her happy. The gospel of Jesus Christ was her theology. That was what she professed. That was what she could articulate. But it didn't provide security for her heart or it didn't drive the way she lived. She understood that she had been forgiven by grace and that she would spend an eternity with the Lord. But with Sarah, there was a huge gap in the middle of her grasp of the gospel. There was this massive chasm because what she professed and what she actually lived and believed in her heart. And so what had happened to Sarah is over time, her Life became her personal Messiah, giving her 
what it was never meant to give. And this is why when her husband, her ex-husband, Henry, walked out never to return and took literally everything with him, she lost everything, just like Job. When that happened, Sarah didn't just lose Henry, the house, and the kids. You know what she lost? She lost herself. That's what she lost. She lost. And Tripp says, as I listen to Sarah talk, I realize that what made this horrible sin against her even more devastating was that in losing all these things, Sarah lost her functional Savior. And in losing her functional Savior, she lost her will to go on. Thankfully, thankfully, it was when Sarah finally got a hold of this truth that her heart began to lift and her hope began to return and Sarah decided to live again. She decided she could live again. You see, as Christians, God wants you to experience full and everlasting joy and satisfaction. God wants you to be happy. He really does. He wants you to be happy. Sometimes, however, the stuff of life Even life itself, the blessings of life, turn your heart and my heart away from God. And it creeps into our lives so subtly. And what happens is God gets put on the shelf. At best, God becomes second place. But God Listen, friends, God cares. He cares too much about you to let that happen. He really does. God is jealous. He is jealous of his own glory. And that means God is jealous of you, his child. He is extremely jealous of you. God knows. He knows that the most satisfying thing, the most satisfying and joy-filled thing in your life is to know and enjoy God. So here is the reality. Sometimes, sometimes God takes so that God can give. That's the reality. That's what we see happening here in Job. Let me put it like this. When you have everything but God, you have nothing. But when you have nothing but God, you have everything. You have everything. Suffering 
what it does and what it did for Job is it exposes your heart. And Satan's accusations that come with it, they should lead you to examine your heart. What brings you greatest joy? Happiness and satisfaction. What brings you comfort in this life? Is it Is it God or is it something else? Unfortunately, you might not know until the suffering takes it away. You see, the reality is is that Satan's question can be asked of you and me. That's the reality. Why do you serve God? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you participate in church? Why do you show up here on Sunday morning? John Piper, he wrote a book many years ago called God is the Gospel. I think it's his best book. And in this book, he asks this penetrating question, which when I read it, it has resonated with me, and it is, it is so convicting. And, and I use this when I'm talking with others about Christianity. And here's what he says. And I'm going to paraphrase essentially what he says. He says, if you could go to heaven and you could have all of the pleasures and joys and happiness you could imagine. I mean, think about it. Think about all the food that you enjoy that you just can't wait to go to on Friday night. If you could have all of the sex that you wanted in this life, in heaven, if you could have all of, the, all of the friendships and people there with you, if you could have all of the recreation that you love, that you enjoy, hunting, fishing, golfing, if you could have all the toys that are in abundance in this life that that you enjoy, the the technology, the cars, the houses, all of that. If you get all of that and you could go to heaven, but Jesus was not there, would you still want to go? Think about that. That is a penetrating question. It goes deep. It reveals why you really want God. It reveals why you claim to be a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Is it because of what he does for you? Is it because of how it makes you feel? How it makes you feel accepted? Is it you have a community that is Christian and you can't go against the community? You want to feel welcomed? You want to feel apart? What if, what if God took it all away? And it's exactly what we see Satan telling God. Take it all away and Job will turn from you. He God, God, don't you see, Job, you take it all away, he is going to turn out to be a fraud. It's what he is. So the question I have, when I was studying this, 
when I was convicted in this text is how do you turn, how do you turn from loving God for what he gives you rather than loving God for God? That to me is a really important question. Well, I've already said suffering exposes your heart, but also suffering refines your heart so that you become, so that God becomes more and more glorious and beautiful in your eyes. You more and more want God for God, not for what he gives you. You no longer love God for yourself. You love God for himself. This is what happened with a woman named Venetha. I read Venetha's testimony a few weeks ago. Venetha suffered from a very, very debilitating fourth miscarriage. And she, in her suffering and pain and asking God why and being upset with God, she writes this testimony, which I think is so beautiful. And I want to quote some of what she wrote. She says that when we worship God during a trial, we declare in that moment that God is more valuable than anything he gives us. That's what we're doing when we're worshiping God in a trial. We're declaring God is more valuable. We're declaring his worth, his value, his treasure. Knowing him is supreme. And she says, God, not our earthly blessings, is the ultimate object of our delight. Job continued to trust God after everything was destroyed. And how do we know this? Job said in chapter 1, verse 21, look at it with me. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She says, while this response speaks highly of Job, it speaks more highly of God. God is is as worthy of our praise in times of loss, pain, and scarcity as he he is in times of fruitfulness and abundance. And she goes on to say, Through my suffering, I saw how linear my functional theology was. My on-the-ground theology, my everyday theology. She says, If I worshiped God and obeyed him, I expected him to give me what I wanted. And if I remained faithful through one big trial, he would keep letting me, he would not keep letting me suffer. He would bless me. In my mind, she says, the reward for following Jesus was a prosperous, fruit-filled, blessed-lading, trouble-free life. But as I saw in Job, God himself is the reward. When you turn away from God in suffering, questioning his love and care, you are agreeing with Satan that God's value is tied to the material blessings he gives. And in that immeasurable assault on God, that is an immeasurable assault, she says, on God's worth. 
think it's spot on. It's spot on. And so the question is, if we, if you, if you are having a hard time, if there is a trial you're going through right now, suffering you're going through right now, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps God is exposing and refining your heart so that, so that you worship God for God. Lesson number two. Satan's accusations are ultimately accusations against God. Satan's accusations are ultimately accusations against God. You know what Satan is accusing God of here in this passage? He's accusing God of lying. You lie, God. Satan is doubting Satan is accusing God of lying. What what, what did God say? Verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And look what he says about him. For there is no one like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's what God said about Job. Job is a good man. Satan says, you lie and I'll prove it to you. Make him suffer and then you'll see. Then you'll see. So in essence, what's happening here is Satan is doubting. Satan is doubting that a human being can express genuine faith in God. That a human can follow God for God. Satan knows our hearts. He is doubting, he is doubting that God is powerful enough to change a self-worshipper, which is what we all are by nature, into a God-worshipper. That's what Satan is doubting. And when, listen, when God changes a self-worshipper to a God-worshipper, you know what happens? God gets glory. And that's what Satan hates. He doesn't like that at all. Satan is attacking, in essence, the very glory of God. He's attacking the very nature of God, the godness of God here. Satan wants to dethrone God. He wants to rule. Satan's accusation on Job, and listen, may I say Satan's accusation on you, brothers and sisters, is ultimately an attack on God. He goes straight for the top. That's what he's doing. Number three, Satan's accusations And plans, I could say, his accusation and plans only go as far as God allows. And and we saw this last time, but we need to highlight it again. God is ultimately in charge in the book of Job. Satan accuses and desires to destroy Job, and he desires to destroy you as a believer. But God only allows it to go so far. Job chapter 1, verse 12, God says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. And then he says, 
only do not reach out and put your hand on him. There's a limit. And in chapter 2, verse 6, when Satan goes again, look at chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all he has is in your power. Only, only spare his life. I could put it like this. Satan is on a leash. He is on a long leash, but it is a leash nonetheless. God permits Satan, as Peter says, to roam around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he only goes as far as God allows him. When God says, stop, Satan goes no farther. That is a great encouragement. And it leads to number four. Finally, number four, Satan's accusations should lead you to Jesus. Satan's accusations should lead you to Jesus. God only allows Satan's accusations to go so far because Satan is ultimately, he has been defeated. He has been defeated. Jesus, listen, Jesus once told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Satan demanded to test, to accuse, to sift Peter, to see what he was really made of. But Jesus goes on to say, not that he has stopped Satan's accusations, not that he has stopped Satan's sifting, What does Jesus goes on to say? He goes on to say that he has prayed for Peter. That his faith will not fail. You see, because because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, Satan can accuse you, he can attack you, but the accusations ultimately will not stick. They will not stick. When the fiery darts come flying in, the fiery darts of you are a loser, the fiery darts of you're never going to get it together, the fiery darts of you're going to experience that besetting sin the rest of your life, the fiery darts of you are doomed, when those fiery darts come in, you turn your thoughts to Jesus. You go to Jesus and you say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. No one. You go to the cross. You go to Jesus. There at the cross, the devil cannot stay. He cannot stay there. And so four lessons. And we could literally give more. 
but we're out of time. And so next time, I want us to turn finally, you're like, let's get to chapter 3. We're going to turn next time to chapter 3, and we're going to look at Job's response to all his suffering and see what